The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hello, this is Alvaro Marañón with an episode from the Lawfare Archives for August 21st, 2021. The rapid developments in Afghanistan this past week, with the Taliban taking over, has created tremendous pressure for the President Biden. The Taliban's quick actions should also alert the Biden administration to focus on other threats, including terrorism around the world. For today's episode from the archives, I've chosen a conversation between Aaron Zellin and Barack Mendelssohn from February 2nd, 2016, on Mendelssohn's new book, the Al-Qaeda franchise, the expansion of Al-Qaeda and its consequences. During this discussion, they cover, among other things, why and where Al-Qaeda decided to branch out, and the strategy behind that decision, how the organizations expand, and how other case studies on different Al-Qaeda branches have turned out. I'm Aaron Zellin, founder of Jihadology.net. And I'm Carl Morand, the show's producer. This episode features an interview with Barack Mendelssohn, an associate professor of political science at Haverford College and senior fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute. He is also the author of the new book, The Al-Qaeda Franchise, The Expansion of Al-Qaeda and Its Consequences. In this episode, we talked about this book and in particular, how organizations in general expand, why Al-Qaeda decided to branch out and what its strategy was behind it, Al-Qaeda's choices on location of branch expansion, and case studies in Al-Qaeda's different branches. After the interview, we'll have an updated hashtag social media segment covering postings from January 20th through the 31st. But for now, here's Aaron's conversation with Barack Mendelssohn. Following the 9-11 attacks, Al-Qaeda began to branch out in a variety of locations, creating or merging with groups that we now know as AQAP, AQI, AQIM, Al-Shabaab, Jabhat al-Nusra, and others. In Barack Mendelssohn's new book, The Al-Qaeda Franchise, The Expansion of Al-Qaeda and Its Consequences, he explores these issues on a theoretical, empirical level, helping to explain AQ's decision-making related to its franchising strategy over the past 15 years. Today, we have him on the pod to talk about it. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So before we get to some of the nitty-gritty aspects of the case studies, can you maybe provide some background on how organizations in general expand and the different types of expansions? I think that what attracted me to the uh, writing this book was the understanding that normally organizations will try to expand operationally. Um, it doesn't have to, uh, an organization doesn't have to open branches anywhere 
It can just send people, create infrastructure in new locations. There is just no a priori reason why they would try to pursue a formal organizational expansion. So when I saw that Al-Qaeda uh, adopted the branching out model, that was the first thing that stood up to me. And I started thinking about a typology of how do organizations, when they decide to expand uh, organizationally, how they, the different models that they use. And uh, I came up with four main ideal type uh, of expansions. Uh, the first one is absorption, where you basically, uh, where a group brings other groups into uh, its fold and uh, absorbs them so that nothing really is left of the old identity of the organization. And the people in the old organizations are just absorbed as individuals uh, into the new organization. Then you have a uh, uh, power sharing arrangements. Uh, this is uh, two organizations that decide to uh, integrate together and on its face maintain uh, uh, some parity. Uh, there is an understanding that both are equal and that they share objectives and there is no significant hierarchy, hierarchy dimension, dimension in that arrangement. The third option that you have, and it's pretty common, and we see that now quite often in Syria, is an umbrella group. And that was actually the first organizational mode that uh, Al-Qaeda chose when it started to expand or try to organizationally expand in 98. In an umbrella group, you have different kinds of organizations bending together, but they each maintain their old identity there is uh, definitely a lot of uh, duplicating efforts and they deal primarily with uh, uh, efforts to coordinate and to create a sense of unity, but without really investing too much in that. So this is also a solution or a framework that can be broken, uh, broken down pretty quickly. And then finally, you have the... Uh, franchising model in which you have a hierarchical element. The one organization is superior to the other groups that join it, but the different groups become franchises. They get instructions from above, but they maintain enough autonomy to act as they uh, wish, of course, following the general strategic guidelines from the main organization. And in the book, I'm trying to suggest that this is what Al-Qaeda tried to do and try to, I'm trying to explain why it picked that method over the alternatives. So then why did AQ, in your opinion, based off of the uh, research that you've done, decide to branch out out of all the other options? The number of explanations. I think that probably the, uh, we need to start with the fact that, uh, or at least my understanding based on the research, it's not really clear that Al-Qaeda, when it, did its first expansion in 2003 when it started with uh, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula in Saudi Arabia, that they actually thought at the time that it was creating a branch. When we look at the evidence, and in these subjects it's always difficult uh, to get the clear picture, but we know now that uh, the leaders of the branch in Saudi Arabia uh, were not happy when Bin Laden gave the instruction to start operating. 
it all seemed pretty rushed. And for that reason, pretty quickly, the organization, the, the branch in Saudi Arabia that was based on Al-Qaeda operatives, not on mergers with any other groups, uh, it was clear that they were not ready and uh, the Saudi regimes uh, hit them pretty hard. Only a few months after they started operating, only then we started seeing them using the uh, name Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. And only a few months after they started operating, they released their journals, Saudi al-Jihad and uh, Muaskar al-Batar. And we know that Al-Qaeda pays so much attention to the media uh, uh, operations that it seems that when Al-Qaeda started operating in Saudi Arabia, it didn't really think yet of being a franchise. And there is a good chance that what happened in reality was that actors on the ground uh, started using name, uh, a certain name when they uh, released media um, media statements, and gradually it became known as a branch. And after that, Al-Qaeda Central thought about it and decided to adapt that as a model for expansion in the future. So there is probably an element of... Uh, randomness in uh, how things went. So that's one reason. Uh, a second reason is that uh, while Al-Qaeda would probably prefer to do the absorption model because uh, it increases your power, it didn't really have the ability to do that, especially as a transnational organization. Uh, you have to use persuasion in order to bring other actors under your fold. And since Al-Qaeda, uh, most organizations would not want to just eliminate themselves uh, and be absorbed under Al-Qaeda, in order to expand through absorption, Al-Qaeda would have needed to use coercive force. But at the time that Al-Qaeda started expanding, it didn't really have that much power anyway. So the option of branching out was the best alternative that it had that maintained Al-Qaeda as the superior organization and allowed Al-Qaeda to show that it's making progress, but uh, in reality, that was less than Al-Qaeda probably would have wanted to have. So that's a second reason. A third reason is that uh, Al-Qaeda at that point was uh, facing significant difficulties. It miscalculated on uh, before the 9-11 attacks, and when it uh, had to deal with the aftermath, it saw that it's not ready to face the uh, American forces. That's what it's doing is not really attracting either other jihadi groups or definitely not the Muslim masses. So Al-Qaeda was in a very uh, deep hole. And then 2003 came and the Iraq war was, uh, was coming and Al-Qaeda saw some kind of opening. It was an opportunity but before opportunity, it was also a real challenge for Al-Qaeda. Because if the U.S., the main enemy of uh, Al-Qaeda, came to the Middle East, came to Iraq to invade, and Al-Qaeda would not be present there, then it would put Al-Qaeda in a very negative light. And it will show its weakness. So the strategic conditions in the Middle East forced Al-Qaeda to try to show that it's still relevant. And since Al-Qaeda didn't have enough power of its own, there is a reason why in 2002 it had to turn to 
other groups like uh, Jamal Islamiyah in Southeast Asia to uh, take actions because Al-Qaeda itself was just besieged in uh, the border area of Afghanistan and Pakistan. So Al-Qaeda had to show that it can do something and it wanted to show that it can expand and it wanted to show that it can still participate in the fight against the U.S. And the branching out model was the only model that could provide it that kind of those kind of opportunities. Yeah. So can you explain then AQ's franchising strategy once they sort of figured out that this was the MO that they were going to use? For my research, it seems that the first two expansions uh, were pretty hectic. Uh, the expansion to Saudi Arabia was uh, doesn't seem to be pre-thought uh, or at least well thought through. Uh, then Al-Qaeda wanted to get into Iraq, uh, which was the main arena in the Middle East and was especially important since the failure in Saudi Arabia. But in Iraq, Al-Qaeda got into negotiations with uh, Abu Musab al-Zarqawi and his organization, Al-Tawhid al-Jihad. And uh, the negotiations were pretty difficult. Uh, they broke down at least once. And they really reflected the different perspectives of uh, Zarqawi uh, and Al-Qaeda, which also manifest today in some way in the distinctions between Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State. But it was so important for Al-Qaeda to show that it can still be relevant that it agreed to merge with uh, Zarqawi's group under the conditions that and the strategy that Zarqawi uh, uh, preferred, which meant focusing on uh, targeting Shia. And we saw how that worked. It's interesting also that uh, the second, the, the Iraqi uh, expansion was the only one in which bin Laden himself announced the expansion. After those two cases, and both of them ended up with miserable outcomes for Al-Qaeda, Al-Qaeda seems to have learned, uh, it tried to codify uh, its expansions, and we we can identify after that uh, Al-Qaeda is learning from that bitter experience and considering again how it wants to make the expansion. So all the expansions after that we see following some uh, trend in terms of how you release the information. It's usually a video uh, featuring uh, Zawahiri and the leader of the organization that is joining Al-Qaeda or the branch that is now being created. And the expansions following Iraq, all of them are being done, um, expansions in which Al-Qaeda is joining with groups that uh, it doesn't judge as likely to undermine it or to cause problems. Clearly, it couldn't really know how useful they're going to be, but uh, it seems that its assessment were that at least they would not be as damaging as its first two cases of expansion. Now, it didn't run to every place that it could expand to. It tried to be very selective, and uh, this way it brought under its uh, uh, wings uh, Al-Qaeda in the uh, Islamic Maghreb, the uh, GSPC before that, uh, 
following by expansions uh, in Yemen, which is uh, another in-house expansion, which means group that was based on Al-Qaeda forces uh, and then gets the label of an Al-Qaeda franchise. Uh, other kinds of learning that we see is that if in the beginning the political reasons made it necessary for Al-Qaeda to admit all its expansion efforts and to announce the franchises, later on Al-Qaeda is more careful. It tries to figure out the best time to announce an expansion and sometimes even decide whether expansion is actually worth it. In the case of Al-Shabaab, we saw that Al-Qaeda uh, actually expanded to or started their relationship, branched out to uh, Al-Shabaab, to uh, Somalia, before it was announced. The documents from the Bin Laden uh, compound in Abbottabad revealed that it seems that around 2010 already, Al-Qaeda uh, and Al-Shabaab were affiliated together, even though only in 2012, Zawahiri formally announces that. So Al-Qaeda is trying to learn, yes, the expansions have political value, but you need to figure out what's the best timing. And the same thing we saw in Jabhat al-Nusra, where it was extremely important for Al-Qaeda to learn from past mistakes, especially the damage that the Iraqi branch caused the Al-Qaeda brand name. And in, with Jabhat al-Nusra, Al-Qaeda again trying to make sure that Jabhat al-Nusra does not reveal the relationship with Al-Qaeda Central too early, before it gets a permission from Al-Qaeda Central and before it actually shows that it can be a constructive and effective actor in the Syrian arena, so that that will be something to compensate for the potential uh, pitfalls of affiliating with Al-Qaeda. Yeah, so maybe you could get into more specifics related to um, Al-Qaeda's sort of choices on location, since you had a full chapter on this and reasons why they might try and affiliate or join up with some other area or not at all. So I try to examine three logics that we usually see in terrorism studies. Uh, one is the strategic logic, suggesting that uh, terrorist organizations operate in order to advance strategic objectives. A second is um, organizational logic, which suggests that an organization is trying to focus on what will be best for the organization uh, rather than political objective. And the third one focuses on ideology. Now, I don't believe that the distinction uh, is very effective if you want to judge one over the other. But I think that all three logics were meaningful, and all three of them had some potential uh, to affect the decision-making of Al-Qaeda. So when you think about what might lead Al-Qaeda to choose a certain arena, uh, you can think about ideology. Ideology would suggest that there are some uh, that you will join an arena where you have uh, jihadi groups operating already, or an arena where you operate against uh, Muslim occupiers of Muslim lands. So, trying to pay attention to those ideological aspects. Uh, 
when you think about the strategic logic, you think about expansion that will actually advance a strategic plan of Al-Qaeda. So you get into an arena that might be close to other important arenas or an arena where access is easier for Al-Qaeda's foreign fighters to go into the new arena. Or alternatively, a place where Al-Qaeda already has enough people uh, located there as it had in um, in Saudi Arabia and in Yemen, uh, which would therefore make it uh, easier for Al-Qaeda to get in and to advance its uh, organizational objectives. If you think about uh, some of the places that strategically could be useful for Al-Qaeda, you have to keep in mind also that Al-Qaeda thinks about the historical appeal of some of those locations. So Iraq was clearly a place where Al-Qaeda could see that its strategic objectives could be advanced. The U.S. is already there. And in terms of the historical analogies, everything seemed to fit perfectly. Uh, It could use the uh, idea that in the past the caliphate sat in Baghdad, that the demise of the caliphate in Baghdad uh, is associated with a uh, treachery by a Shia uh, minister back then, and try to look at all those uh, analogies as something that might attract people to join Al-Qaeda and therefore enhance Al-Qaeda's abilities in Iraq and outside of uh, Iraq. And then when it comes to the organizational interest, uh, Al-Qaeda definitely had to consider whether the organizations that it's bringing under, uh, bringing uh, in, whether they will be uh, destructive or not, whether they can uh, help the whole set of uh, groups under Al-Qaeda to flourish, or whether they will create divergence between branches and Al-Qaeda Central. So these are some of the criteria that I wanted to examine in Al-Qaeda's decisions and to see which actually were more important. Now, of course, looking at uh, all these cases together, and in the book I have nine case studies. Uh, I'm using uh, case studies of places where Al-Qaeda expanded to and places where Al-Qaeda avoided expansion. And when you look at all these, you can't really say that there is one master variable that explains all Al-Qaeda's decisions. And we shouldn't expect to find one since the expansion decisions were happening gradually and there is a learning process that affected how Al-Qaeda ended up uh, expanding. But it still gives a very uh, interesting view and allows us to actually see Al-Qaeda as a learning organization, how they figured out the branching out model. It's not that I believe that that model was uh, a huge success for Al-Qaeda, but it was clear that within the bounds of its decision to expand organizationally, it learned over time how to do it in a more effective way. Yeah, so that's a perfect segue to sort of the empirical side of, of the book. Maybe we could talk a little bit about the first expansions more in depth related to Saudi Arabia and Iraq. So what happened in Saudi Arabia, uh, I mentioned already that uh, it doesn't seem like there was a decision by Al-Qaeda at that point to create a branch in Saudi Arabia. 
But bin Laden was anxious to show activity. And Al-Qaeda had operatives in Saudi Arabia. Uh, a large number of uh, Al-Qaeda operatives uh, existed in Saudi Arabia. Many of them came after the American invasion uh, of Afghanistan, escaped to Saudi Arabia. So when Al-Qaeda started creating a, an infrastructure, an operational infrastructure in Saudi Arabia, it actually had a large number of uh, uh, operatives, uh, something like a thousand, uh, which is quite a significant number for a terrorist organization. And Al-Qaeda, since Al-Qaeda Central was not able to do much uh, under the American pressure, it became important for Al-Qaeda to operate elsewhere. And Saudi Arabia seems to be the perfect place for that. Bin Laden believed that he has lots of supporters, that his connections there and the glory of his uh, old days in the resistance to the Soviets in Afghanistan will help him. Saudi Arabia is also, uh, has always been for Bin Laden, the main grievance. Uh, we see in his declaration of war, he keeps mentioning the sort of occupation or the alleged occupation of Saudi Arabia by uh, the Crusader American forces. And Saudi Arabia is not just any other place, uh, even not any other place that is being occupied by the U.S. It is the place that hosts the two holiest places uh, for Islam, therefore has significant uh, religious symbolism. And since Al-Qaeda at that point didn't really have the capabilities to get into the Iraqi arena at a time that it became important, Saudi Arabia became the best alternative that they had. And Al-Qaeda tried in its propaganda to suggest that by taking action against Westerners in Saudi Arabia, it's actually contributing to the fight against the US in Iraq as well. So Al-Qaeda started by, Laden gave instructions and tried two different paths to create infrastructure in the Gulf. Uh, one of them was blocked uh, due to uh, the capture of uh, an Al-Qaeda leader, but the other one, led by Yusuf al uyari actually proved pretty effective in bringing together the different Al-Qaeda operatives and creating from different independent cells, creating uh, a more organized, better bureaucratized group. Bin Laden then orders... Uh, Aloyari to start operating. And the first operation takes place in May of 2003, shortly after uh, the U.S. invades uh, invades Iraq. But Al-Qaeda is not ready for that uh, expansion yet, uh, definitely not ready to starting operations. And even though uh, the news from Saudi Arabia appeared pretty alarming at the time, and of course the direct suffering of people that were affected uh, is significant, in reality, in terms of promoting Al-Qaeda's strategic interest, the expansion to uh, Saudi Arabia failed miserably. And very quickly, the regime cracked down on Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda found out that uh, despite its belief that it's going to be received uh, pretty with welcome, welcoming arms by many Saudis, it saw that the Saudis were unhappy about uh, 
terrorist operations inside Saudi Arabia that for most Saudis if you want if you want to go and, and fulfill your jihadi duties uh, the place to do it would be in Iraq against American occupation not in Saudi Arabia where the conservatism still suggested that uh, of the country still suggested that the royal family with all its faults still had much more significant legitimacy uh, than Al-Qaeda anticipated. So Al-Qaeda found itself operating in an arena that was supposed to be welcoming, became pretty difficult to operate, and gradually the group in Saudi Arabia uh, was decimated. The announcement of a branch or getting the signs of a branch actually paralleled the uh, decline of Al-Qaeda in Saudi Arabia, suggesting that in many ways the uh, format of a branch in Saudi Arabia was also a way to politically compensate for the failures, the operational failures in Saudi Arabia. So that's about Saudi Arabia. The next expansion was in Iraq. And as I mentioned, uh, Al-Qaeda miscalculated before 9-11, and as a result, when its plan to bring the U.S. into the Middle East actually materialized, it didn't really have the capability to face Al-Qaeda in Iraq. As a result, it had to turn to some kind of alternative, because not being in an arena like that also comes with costs. Uh, it's important to pay attention to that. It's not just about where you go in, but places that you are trying, that you are avoiding, can also reflect uh, reflect on you, and in some cases can reflect poorly on you. There is a reason why we see other jihadi groups constantly hammering Al-Qaeda for its absence from the Palestinian, from the Palestinian arena. How can you speak so much about the importance of Palestine, and yet you're not really operating in the Palestinian arena? So Iraq was definitely a place that Al-Qaeda had to find a way in, but didn't really have the ability. The alternative was to just merge with a group that was already there. And uh, Abu Musab al-Zarqawi did a pretty good job preparing uh, for the Iraq war, creating an infrastructure, taking advantage of the power vacuum afterwards uh, to expand his operation, expand the mobilization of volunteers. Uh, and so he was a very attractive partner. The problem was that it was also somebody that Al-Qaeda's leaders didn't like. Bin Laden met him already in 1999 in Afghanistan and, took, uh, and immediately disliked him. It was only for uh, the convincing of Saif al-Adil uh, to try to suggest to Bin Laden that it's going to be useful to keep some... Uh, friendly relations with al-Zarqawi uh, that bin Laden gave al-Zarqawi some seed money to open uh, training camps close to the Iranian border. So we have this guy, Zarqawi, operating in Iraq. The relationship between him and al-Qaeda, not great. Uh, his view of how, of what should be the objectives of a jihadi group and who should be the main target, the strategy to operate very different from the one that Al-Qaeda is trying to pursue. And as a result, there is significant divergence between the two organizations. And yet Al-Qaeda is so desperate 
to show that it's still relevant, to show that uh, it has greater appeal, that it's still uh, an important actor and that it has presence in the most important arena of the time, that is willing to enter that relationship with somebody that's going to end up causing it uh, significant harm over time, and that his successors will end up establishing the Islamic State of Iraq without informing Al-Qaeda Central and without uh, asking for its uh, authorization either. And later on, that same branch will become uh, the Islamic State of Iraq and Asham, and what we see now is the Islamic State, basically a franchise that outsta- upstaged Al-Qaeda Central, became not just a competitor, but really a, a, an actor that is now threatening to eliminate Al-Qaeda. So the consequences of a poor choice in Iraq are just uh, pretty incredible. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If I could offer you an extra hour a day in your life, what would you do with it? Would you go for a run? Would you sleep in? Would you read? Would you go hang out with a friend? A lot of us spend time wishing we had more time. You actually can create more time for yourself. It's by figuring out what's important to you, making that a priority, and that is where therapy can help you. It can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it and less of the things that you don't care about but you actually waste a lot of time on. Therapy is a great way to prioritize what's important to you, to focus on what matters and dismiss the trivial. It's a great way to learn how to set boundaries and how to develop coping skills It can help you be the best version of yourself, and it isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not try BetterHelp? It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. You can make it work with your schedule. All you do is you fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com lawfare today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com 
slash lawfare. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime, identity theft, stalking, or even violence? I used to think this was silly, and then weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And Delete Me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web. And in the process, it helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once because the information will get back into the systems. It does it and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports and they send regular reports uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 code Lawfare twenty. Yeah, we could we can still see the ramifications to this day. Um, moving to the expansions or spreading, as you described it, of AQ branches in the middle of last decade. Maybe you can talk a little about uh, uh, the expansions uh, with Algeria, Yemen, and Somalia. Sure. Uh, Algeria was a good opportunity. Uh, Algeria was a, a problematic 
place for jihadis, the memories of the war of the 1990s, the civil war, uh, loomed large for the jihadi community. Most people, when they think about the civil war in Algeria, uh, think about the brutality of the jihadis versus uh, civilians. But a side story of what happened in Algeria uh, was the uh, infighting among jihadis. And what was especially important was how the uh, GIA, the main jihadi group in the early 1990s, actually went against uh, foreign fighters, volunteers, the jihadi volunteers that came to assist it. So when the GIA imploded and the GSPC came in its stead, it had already better relationship uh, with bin Laden, but there was still significant distrust in the jihadi universe of the Algerians. But when the Iraq war began, uh, the GSPC started reorienting itself towards uh, um, towards global jihad, started uh, creating connections with Zarqawi. Uh, lots of Algerians uh, made the way into the Iraqi arena. And slowly, gradually, the GSPC uh, recovered the uh, reputation or the positive image of Algerian jihadis and try to show Al-Qaeda Central that it is a, it's going to be a useful partner for Al-Qaeda in the future. And after some negotiations, uh, Al-Qaeda eventually was willing to bring the GSPC uh, into Al-Qaeda. It wasn't clear and I won't be surprised if Al-Qaeda Central believed that it's going to get more from the Algerian uh, branch. But at the same time, at least it didn't seem to pay such a significant price for this kind of expansion. At that point, Al-Qaeda made sure that the expansion is going to be on its own terms. And even though it couldn't really supervise what happens in uh, Algeria or make sure that the GSPC, now Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb uh, is actually attacking the targets that Al-Qaeda Central would prefer rather than being uh, engulfed in targeting Algerian local targets, domestic targets. Still, the sense was that this was not a huge gamble and that uh, it showed that Al-Qaeda is still expanding. And we actually see these days that uh, uh, Algerian branch is surprisingly loyal to Al-Qaeda Central. The elements within, uh, within or formerly within the, this Algerian branch that uh, defected to the Islamic State, but overall the leadership of uh, uh, Al-Qaeda and the uh, Islamic Maghreb seems to be uh, loyal to uh, Zawahiri. And we see in the past year that they are releasing statements together with Al-Qaeda in the Ribbon Peninsula, uh, suggesting close relationships. So that's the case of Algeria. I don't think that Algeria was a huge success, but Al Algeria was definitely a place that uh, allowed Al-Qaeda to show that it's still relevant, that might be more useful in the future. And of course, today, when Al-Qaeda is fighting primarily against the Islamic State, having a 
a branch in Algeria is important not as a, uh, a force that will fight the U.S., but as a force that can stand against the expansion of the Islamic State. Now, with regard to Yemen, I'm trying to suggest in the book that uh, expansion, you have two forms of expansion uh, in the branching out model. One is that you can merge with other groups. But the more reliable form of expansion is to take people from your own group and in a way uh, making some kind of organizational restructuring and giving your operatives in a certain arena an independent sort of autonomy and labeling them as uh, a branch. So this is a sort of in-house expansion. And we saw it twice. We saw it once in Saudi Arabia, and we saw it for the second time in Yemen. Hardly surprising since these are the uh, countries that are mostly associated with bin Laden. And these groups tend to be, because they were already members of Al-Qaeda, tend to be a lot more uh, loyal to Al-Qaeda Central. In 2006, when a number of Al-Qaeda operatives managed to escape from prison in Yemen, suddenly there was an injection of uh, capable fighters that could start uh, the Yemen branch. And in the beginning, they used the, the name of uh, a name that specifically referred to Yemen. Over time, they managed to prove that uh, they are useful. And I guess that at that point, you already have three other branches of Al-Qaeda. So it's not surprising that uh, people in Yemen would have wanted to have uh, a status of a branch. In 2009, eventually, uh, we see members of Al-Qaeda escaping from Saudi Arabia and heading into Yemen. And when you have a critical mass of important uh, Al-Qaeda operatives from Saudi Arabia converging, coming together with the Yemeni leadership of Al-Qaeda, then you have the opportunity for Al-Qaeda to announce the second iteration of Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. As I said, the announcement of Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula happens in 2009, but in reality, we can see a branch operating in Yemen already about two years earlier. As we know now, this Yemeni branch is the most loyal branch for Al-Qaeda. Uh, the deceased leader of the Yemeni branch, uh, Al-Wahaishi, that was killed last year, uh, he was very close to bin Laden himself. And he is the first person outside of Al-Qaeda Central, the first one in the branches, to get a very high position, basically being Zawahiri's deputy, uh, a few years ago after Al-Qaeda exhausted its bench of uh, leaders in Afghanistan, Pakistan. So that's a good sign that Al-Qaeda Central believed that its Yemen branch is loyal and reliable. It's no surprise then that it's also going to be the, or was the branch that uh, 
paid greater attention to trying to attack the West, not just Western targets in the Arabian Peninsula, but actually attacking Western targets uh, as the Christmas uh, uh, bombing plot, uh, I guess, is the best example for that. So the Yemeni branch is uh, still active, and it seems like that was a, a wise Al-Qaeda decision, it uh, and the fact that they are now when Al Qaeda Central is struggling, it's Al Qaeda in the Ribbon Peninsula that is carrying the Al Qaeda flag and making sure, coordinating with other actors, other Al Qaeda branches, making sure to advance Al Qaeda's strategic goals. So that's the case of Yemen. Somalia is a more complicated one. Because in Somalia, Al-Qaeda had very poor experience in the 1990s. It knows that uh, geography is uh, very unpleasant. It knows that uh, tribalism is prominent in in, in Somalia and that many times uh, what it would see as an Islamist agenda or jihadi agenda uh, will in reality be just different uh, tribes or different power centers based on tribalism in Somalia, just trying to take uh, uh, use jihadi ideology to advance much narrower interests. But Al-Qaeda also understands that uh, there are some benefits for maintaining positive relationship. And so when the leader of uh, Al-Shabaab in Somalia, at the time that uh, Al-Shabaab expanded and did tremendously well, uh, taking control over a significant part of Mogadishu even, uh, then Al-Qaeda decides that it's going to hedge its bets. It's going to accept the appeals from the leader of uh, the Somali, or Al-Shabaab uh, from Gudain, and it will create a relationship but in order to avoid the fallback, uh, the, the backlash from that relationship, uh, it wanted to keep that relationship secret. And we saw in the Bin Laden letters uh, that he's trying to tell the leadership in uh, Somalia that the reason why he prefers not to make the affiliation known is because the Somali people have significant needs and for that uh, and for to address those needs, it's important that uh, al-Shabaab would be dissociated from al-Qaeda. How genuine those considerations were, I have my doubts, but we don't have clear evidence at this point. Later on, it's interesting that the formal announcement of the franchise uh, or the affiliation with al-Shabaab actually came at a time that both Al-Qaeda Central and Al-Shabaab are in decline, rather than at a time that Al-Shabaab did tremendously well. The affiliation comes in, the formal announcement comes at the beginning of 2012, after Zawahiri's uh, substituting, um, replacing uh, Bin Laden as the leader. And at a time where there are Voices within Al-Shabaab, um, as were voices from Al-Qaeda individuals operating within 
Somalia that uh, objected to that uh, affiliation. So despite the people that complain, Al-Shabaab members that complained against their leadership, um, and despite the uh, objections of Al-Qaeda operatives in Somalia, the pressure on both organizations seemed to have led them to decide to announce the affiliation formally. Of course, speaking about uh, Somalia is always a complicated situation, keeps changing. Uh, at the time that Al-Shabaab uh, did pretty well, the relationship between the two groups, between Al-Shabaab and Al-Qaeda, uh, was not uh, recognized. When Al-Qaeda and Al-Shabaab were doing poorly, that was the time that we see Al-Qaeda showing up and announcing the merger. And in some ways, this is a, a gamble because Godain is not a great partner. Godain is actually going after foreign fighters. And because Al-Qaeda Central cannot restrain uh, any unruly branch, Al-Qaeda is suffering the consequences of the purges that uh, Godain is conducting. Because now we are also in a very different social media environment. And so many of the, uh, what happened, many of the conflicts within Al-Shabaab is playing in the, um, playing in the media. Uh, we all know about uh, Omar Khamami, uh, the American jihadi, and his use of social media to complain against the leadership of Al-Shabaab, uh, to warn that uh, his life is uh, threatened, to warn against the way that Gudain treated the foreign fighters. And we see him, as well as other people, other leaders of Al-Shabaab, appealing explicitly through the media to Zawahiri to get involved, to do something to restrain the uh, restrain Gudain. But Zawahiri doesn't really have the ability to do that. And the result is that we see Al-Shabaab, uh, that the, all the dirty laundry of Al-Shabaab and uh, the weakness of Al-Qaeda is being exposed for everybody to see, and Al-Qaeda Central doesn't really have any uh, way to deal with that problem. So that's uh, the issue of Somalia. Of course, Somalia, because the situation is fluid, we now see Al-Shabaab doing much better. So in this regard, and definitely after a new leadership, uh, it might be that the Al-Qaeda bet on Al-Shabaab it's not that disastrous. Uh, at the same time, of all the Al-Qaeda branches, uh, Al-Shabaab seems to be the least reliable and where the threat of defection to the Islamic State is probably the highest. So one of the interesting things you did in this book, besides looking at the uh, expansion of the f franchises by Al-Qaeda, was also sort of the non-decisions or or sort of the duds in some ways. Um, can you talk about um, the cases of Egypt, Libya, and Palestine, maybe? Sure. Uh, the first one is the, the issue of Palestine is especially important. Uh, in Palestine, on its face, should be a place for Al-Qaeda to expand to. Uh, 
Al-Qaeda always suggested, its leaders suggested that there is no subject that is more appealing to Muslims than the suffering of the uh, Palestinians' uh, brothers. And despite the rhetorical focus on uh, Palestine, the suffering of Palestinians, the Jewish occupation, uh, and we should remember that Al-Qaeda is paying significant attention, at least rhetorically, to the role of the Jews in the attack on Islam. So the fact that Al-Qaeda doesn't operate in the Palestinian Authority or in the Palestinian arena is a very important issue, and it exposed them to criticism. And yet, despite that criticism, Al-Qaeda did not start uh, a branch in, uh, in Gaza, uh, definitely not in the West Bank. So what is the reason for that? Um, my sense was that we can learn a lot from those non-events, uh, at least as much as we can learn from the places that Al-Qaeda did choose to expand to. Operationally, expanding to the Palestinian arena is very complicated. Uh, Al-Qaeda noted many times that there are uh, states bordering Israel that are protecting Israel's borders, and therefore it's uh, almost impossible for Al-Qaeda to get in. If Al-Qaeda wanted to get uh, in, getting into the West Bank was going to be very difficult going into the Gaza Strip was supposed to be easier. You can uh, get through Sinai and use one of the many tunnels to get into the Gaza Strip. Or you can use some of the Salafi groups operating within Gaza. And yet, Al-Qaeda avoided that. And I attribute that decision uh, to the primacy of Hamas in Gaza. Maybe some people would like to think that uh, Hamas and Al-Qaeda are very similar, but we know that the significant conflict between them, Hamas is uh, linked to the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, that have very different notion of how to advance political Islam than the jihadis of Al-Qaeda have. And the rivalry between Al-Qaeda and Hamas was actually pretty bitter to the point that leaders of uh, Hamas announced when, uh, to one of the uh, statements made by uh, Al-Qaeda people in Iraq, uh, making very clear that they will never allow Al-Qaeda to operate within the Gaza Strip, to even get into the Gaza Strip. So if you can't really get into the Palestinian territories, the other option is to use uh, forces that are already on the ground, the way that Iraq, that, that Al-Qaeda did in Iraq, in Algeria, and in Somalia. But because Hamas was so dominant in the Gaza Strip, and Fatah is dominant in the West Bank, Al-Qaeda doesn't really have any way to create a sufficiently strong organization within the Palestinian territories that could uh, then become its its branch. And because there is also uh, 
division between the different Salafi groups in, in Gaza, Al-Qaeda just decides that it's not worth the, uh, the effort, that it's bound to fail, and it's willing to even accept the, the damage that it's going to, of absence from that arena uh, to its reputation. So that's the case of uh, Palestine. Now, the case of Egypt and Libya uh, is somewhat different. In those two cases, Al-Qaeda actually announced expansion uh, or affiliation with groups uh, that were part of the Gamay Islamiyya, the Egyptian Gamay Islamiyya, and with the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group. And yet I argue that none of those expansion efforts uh, should be seen as uh, genuine expansion efforts. Uh, what happened was that Following the American invasion, most of the jihadis escaped uh, from different nationalities, different organizations, escaped Afghanistan. Uh, many of them went back home, if they could. Uh, many of those that went back home ended up in prison. Some were arrested in other locations and were sent back uh, home to uh, serve in prison. But there were a few contingency of members from different jihadi groups that remained to operate in the tribal areas. So there was a significant group of Libyans, members of the Libyan Islamic uh, uh, fighting group, uh, operating in um, operating in Pakistan's tribal areas. In Iran, there was a. a there were a few cells of former members of the Gama Islamia, Egyptian Gama Islamia. And these groups operated close to Al-Qaeda Central. So over the years, you can see how those groups are actually getting closer to Al-Qaeda because they are fighting and bonding on the ground. But they're also experiencing jihadism in a very different way than uh, the leaders of the groups back in Algeria, back in uh, Libya and in Egypt. That creates significant distance. At a time that Al-Qaeda decides that it wants to expand, then it turns to these two organizations, to leaders that were close to Al-Qaeda, and it tries a gambit of announcing that they are joining Al-Qaeda. Part of the story is to try to show that Al-Qaeda is really expanding, and it doesn't really require this kind of expansion, don't require it to put uh, too many resources. But another part of the story of uh, Egypt and uh, Libya is that these two groups, the people leading those groups in Libya and, uh, and, and Egypt, are engaged in... Uh, process of self-reflection and writing refutation books, basically going against their old ways, and, of course, also uh, writing things that, uh, in the case of the Gamma Islamia in Egypt, go directly, books that specifically criticize Al-Qaeda. In the case of the Libyan Islamic group, the final outcome was a book that doesn't really mention much Al-Qaeda, but it's very clear uh, that is opposed to Al-Qaeda's ways. So the attempts to suggest expansion to Libya and Egypt 
a sort of a preemptive strike by Al-Qaeda, trying to uh, reduce the appeal of the uh, recanting leaders of the those branches and an attempt to maybe the best case, hoping that they will succeed by announcing the merger with those groups. Al-Qaeda will succeed to get some more people uh, from within Libya and Egypt to decide that they want to join Al-Qaeda. But in none of those cases, we don't have any evidence that the announcement was preceded by any real efforts to create operational infrastructure for Al-Qaeda in those countries. So it ends up uh, eventually as seeming primarily as a rhetorical effort with hope that maybe something will come out of that, uh, but without really great hopes that it's going to happen. And in reality, uh, those efforts failed pretty miserably. And um, at this point, it seems that Al-Qaeda decided that uh, it doesn't even want to have an independent, uh, autonomous Libyan branch. Now, as opposed to 10 years ago, uh, Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb is actually responsible for Libya, something that in the past didn't happen. Yeah, and then the final grouping of branches that have joined AQ in recent years, obviously, is the case of Syria, um, but also their Indian subcontinent branch. Right. Syria was very tempting. Uh, Al-Qaeda in general, prefers to go to an arenas where it's going to be received, uh, when it's going to be welcomed by uh, the other jihadi groups operating. And when you have a very split jihadi or Islamist uh, scene, Al-Qaeda will be more reluctant to go in. It would like to see itself as a uniting force rather than as a force for division, and therefore, many times it would just wait for actors to, uh, for the conditions to be more conducive for entering the arena. But in the case of Syria, uh, it was important for Al Qaeda Central to show up, and that uh, interest uh, corresponded to the interest of the leadership of the of Al Qaeda, of the Islamic State of Iraq and of the individuals that were sent from Iraq, that uh, those seven, eight individuals that were sent uh, in the summer of uh, 2011 from the Islamic State of Iraq to start creating an infrastructure in uh, Syria. Al-Qaeda instructed, Al-Qaeda Central instructed uh, its uh, the people that went to form an infrastructure in Syria, not to reveal their affiliation to the Islamic State of Iraq and not to reveal their affiliation with Al-Qaeda, hoping to uh, get some time to create the infrastructure that it needs and hoping to create an appeal among uh, among the locals and among the established Islamist jihadi groups operating in, in Syria so that when Al-Qaeda can feel ready to announce that Jabhat al-Nusra is its own branch, uh, it won't have too many damaging effects. Syria was just a place that Al-Qaeda couldn't avoid. Uh, This was a very uh, 
important arena. It's bordering many states in the Middle East. Everybody else is in that arena, so avoiding it would signal that Al-Qaeda is very weak. And of course, if your objective at the end of the process is to hit Israel, Syria also has a, a shared border with Israel. And Al-Qaeda had few people that it could trust in Syria. And so in Syria, it tried a new model of expansion, uh, where it is trying, trying to integrate itself within the local opposition in a way it didn't try uh, before, and to create better relationships, uh, hoping that that will help it in the future. And things went pretty well. Jabhat al-Nusra was very effective and perhaps too effective because it became too independent for the liking of Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi and the Islamic State of Iraq, eventually leading him to announce the expansion of the Islamic State of Iraq into Syria. What's important to note is that despite all the upheavals that Jabhat al-Nusra experienced, it proved itself extremely resilient. The fact that they are uh, that they managed to survive the uh, entry of the Islamic State of Iraq into the arena, the uh, announcement of the restoration of the self-styled caliphate, uh, that despite all that, despite the efforts of uh, the US-led coalition to target Jabhat al-Nusra, uh, Despite all these efforts and internal conflicts within Jabhat al-Nusra, conflict with other groups, the fact that Jabhat al-Nusra is now so well embedded within the Syrian opposition, the fact that they managed to uh, become the most important military force within the rebellion, uh, that's nothing less than, than remarkable. It just prove itself to be extremely resilient. As for uh, the uh, Al-Qaeda in the Indian subcontinent, uh, and that's where I, I try to end the book, I see that expansion as a matter of uh, a response to the Islamic State's uh, uh, caliphate. The announcement comes about two, three months after uh, Baghdadi announces the caliphate. Only Al-Qaeda doesn't really respond that much over that summer to the establishment of the caliphate. But then in September, uh, it announces that uh, it has now established a new branch in the Indian subcontinent. And while the announcement doesn't say anything explicitly about the Islamic State, it's clear that Zawahiri is trying to show the differences between Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State. He speaks about a process of two years in which Al-Qaeda tried to bring different groups together, showing that Al-Qaeda, as opposed to the Islamic State, is a force for unity, that it seeks to uh, bring different groups together rather than split them, that it's works by persuasion rather than through coercion. And so in many ways, the case of uh, AQIS is an example of Al-Qaeda trying to show that it's still operating, that it's still relevant, and also rebranding itself as the 
reasonable jihadi group. It was hoping that its uh, first operations will be more successful. And it seems at this point, uh, it's really hard at this point to see what is really the strategic logic behind the operations of uh, AQIS. Its first operations focused on using, it tried to attack Pakistani ships, take over them and get closer to American ships uh, and try to target those American ships, really showing that Al-Qaeda is still attached to the uh, objective of fighting against the United States, the main enemy, not the uh, not the near enemy, the way that uh, um, the Islamic State is, is operating. And it was a very daring operation, but it failed. And ever since, Al-Qaeda tried, the branch tried to make, do some kind of operations like that on the high seas that uh, didn't bring much success. And after that, it's really hard to see what is leading the activity of uh, uh, Al-Qaeda in the uh, Indian subcontinent. Perhaps it's nothing more than just um, a different name for Al-Qaeda Central. Uh, it seems that they were very important for establishing new training camps that the U.S. just revealed a few months ago, significant training camps in Afghanistan. So it might be that the real value of uh, the new branch is just by the matter of branding showing that Al-Qaeda is still active uh, despite the expansion of the Islamic State. But operationally, it's still hard to see the important strategic contribution of the new branch. Yeah. So what lessons do you think we can learn in terms of what IS has been attempting to do now since November 2014, when it created its own provinces outside of its core territory in Iraq and Syria? Or do you think this scenario is different because AQ and IS have different organizational ethos, uh, as well as how they operate vis-a-vis the entities outside of their core territories? They're different in, in many ways. Uh, al Qaeda is still an organization, while it's now showing more interest in management or in governance because the Islamic State created new standards and governance seems to be uh, necessary. Al-Qaeda is still very reluctant to pursue that unless it has to. Bin Laden himself was pretty critical of the notion of the idea of uh, focusing too many energies on establishing new emirates, and he preferred to continue to work as a, uh, a terrorist or insurgency uh, organization rather than to create emirates that will destruct al-Qaeda, that uh, will expose al-Qaeda to external forces, and that will take lots of resources that Al-Qaeda could use for the main fight against the United States. So contrary to Al-Qaeda, the Islamic State is trying to pursue a different trajectory where it sees itself as a state and territoriality and governance are central to its, uh, to its advancement. So while there are some similarities in the process, uh, both actors see themselves in very different terms. Of course, they also have 
differences in their uh, other elements of their strategy. Al-Qaeda is still saying that it's focused primarily on the U.S. So any efforts of uh, expansion that will be kind of the provinces that the Islamic State is, is creating uh, just not going to be very useful for promoting that objective. On the other hand, for the Islamic State, its focus is on trying to expand, first of all, in the Middle East, in countries that are dominated by, uh, have Muslim pluralities. And by establishing provinces, uh, the Islamic State is not just trying to expand the Al-Qaeda style. Establishing provinces is also a way to fight Al-Qaeda. There are some provinces of the Islamic State that the Islamic State doesn't have much uh, significant infrastructure in those uh, places and doesn't really engage in um, doesn't really engage at all in governance. But the Islamic State's claim, since they are now a caliphate, then everybody, all Muslims, must. Uh, pledge by uh, to uh, pledge of allegiance to Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. And in any place that the Islamic State is expanding to, all Muslims must, not just uh, all Muslim groups, all jihadi groups especially, must dismantle themselves. Uh, they are no longer valid and they all owe a pledge of allegiance to Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. So in some ways, the announcement of wilayas by the Islamic State is not just a matter of showing that it can expand. Uh, it's not also it's not always also a case of bringing governance, but it's an effort to directly challenge Al Qaeda in all locations that Al Qaeda exists by bringing into light the problems of allegiance. And the fact that the Islamic State, seeing itself as a state, uh, believes that all Muslims and all groups owe its allegiance. And so the expansion through provinces is also a way to delegitimize the existence of Al-Qaeda in all those locations and provide uh, a channel for disgruntled or just unhappy Al-Qaeda operatives uh, that would like to join the Islamic State that seems just much more successful these days. So I think that these aspects make significant differences and might explain to some extent why the Islamic State is following a, a model of not of an organizational expansion, but of state building. Yeah, well, it, we still have a lot of ways to see how this is all going to play out, whether for Al-Qaeda or for the Islamic State. But thanks for coming on to the show today, Barack, and talking about a really interesting subject. A pleasure. This episode's hashtag social media segment will cover postings from January 20th through the 31st. During that time span, five foreign fighters with various groups were killed in Syria, while Ansar al-Sharia in the Arabian Peninsula will be referred to as ASAP going forward, which is a front group of AQAP, announces that it conducted 15 military operations in Yemen. 
On January 21st, Wilayatarabulus of the Islamic State shows off a furniture store in Sirt, Libya. Also on the 21st, Jabhat al-Nusra distributes blankets and aid to ordinary Muslims in the city of Abu Zahur, Syria. On the 21st as well, ASAP distributes relief aid to the needy in al-Mukalla, Yemen. Also on January 21st, Wilayat Salah Adin of the Islamic State shows off the work of an onion farm in Iraq. And on January 21st as well, Wilayat Baraka of the Islamic State fixes electrical lines in al-Shaddadi city, Syria. On January 22nd, Wilayat Ghur of the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan conducts a dawah session. On the 22nd as well, Wilayat Ghur of the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan distributes its Tora Bora magazine to tribal chieftains. On January 23rd, one foreign fighter from Syria was killed in Iraq with the Islamic State. On January 24th, Jabhat al-Nusra does maintenance on the water pumps in Aleppo, Syria. On January 27th, ASAP fixes the electricity in Al-Mukalla, Yemen. On the 27th as well, ASAP cleaned the streets in Lahaj, Yemen. Also on the 27th, ASAP repaves roads in Al-Mukalla, Yemen. On January 28th, one foreign fighter from the Netherlands carried out a car bomb attack in Yemen with the Islamic State. Also on January 28th, ASAP confiscates toxic chemicals in Wakar, Yemen. On the 28th as well, ASAP provides medical care to residents in Amokalla, Yemen. On the 28th also, Wilayat Ninoa of the Islamic State constructs a park for children in Al-Qusur area of Mosul City, Iraq. On January 29th, Wilayat Tarabulus of the Islamic State conducts a Sharia course for ordinary Muslims. On January 30th, Jabhat al-Nusra cleans the waste from the streets in Aleppo, Syria. On January 30th as well, Wilayat Hadramat of the Islamic State shows off its medical center in Yemen. Finally, on January 30th, ASAP destroys a polytheistic shrine in Wadi Sir, Yemen. If you have any feedback, you can email us, podcast at jihadology.net, or find us on Twitter, where we are at jihadpod. If you're a fan of the show, please check out the Patreon link in the show notes, where you can make a small donation to help support the podcast. As always, the show can be found on Stitcher as well as iTunes, and if you use one of those platforms to subscribe to the show, please take a moment to rate and review it, which will help more people discover the podcast. Thanks, everyone, for listening to the Jihadology podcast. Thanks to Barack for coming onto the show and sharing his expertise with us. Also, thanks to the podmaster, Carl Moran, for making sure this podcast sounds and runs smoothly. Until next time, I'm out. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.